Open your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. I have a couple of things I'm going to say as we begin. A little bit of a um, <clears throat> finishing of the last message and then beginning of the second one. I had a different message I was planning on preaching this afternoon. And I just don't think the Lord's going to let me do that. I'm going to, so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 in the end of this. But I want to start here um, just dealing with some of the errors that we come across in sanctification. Now, let's, let's just, one of the worst things in the world for a preacher is to be the first preacher after lunch. <laughs> so I would appreciate it if you, you know, really focus and uh, we'll stick through this. Now, let's, let's just do a little bit of review this morning. Three types of sanctification. Can somebody name them? Positional. Ultimate. Okay, positional, progressive, ultimate. Two aspects of progressive sanctification. Spiritual health and maturity. Spiritual health and maturity. Walking in the Spirit would be associated with which of those two? Spiritual health. Okay, you're getting it. You got it. Now let's just talk about some wrong views of sanctification. Okay, what I would like to call is false views of sanctification. And I have a list of these here. And so let's, uh, let's go, go through them. And this is just finishing up a little bit of that last message. The first one would be this. I call it sanctification by effort. You just work hard. By the way, this has been commonly, I don't know if it's so much taught, but practiced in fundamentalism. Uh, my assistant pastor, one of, our, one of our assistant pastors, Mark French, Grew up within fundamentalism, was, um, uh, was um, the assistant to some pretty famous type of preachers, um, worked in, in a church in North Carolina for a while. He said, my first years in, in fundamentalism, especially working in Christianity, was the harder you work, the more spiritual you were. So if you, I mean, if you worked 40 hours a week, you were sort of an average Christian. If you worked 50 hours a week, you were a little bit better Christian. If you put 60 or 70, that was what a super Christian was. And it was this idea of just simply the more you do, the more effort you put out, the more energy you put out, the more spiritual you are. That is a wrong view of sanctification. It's sanctification by effort. And it leaves out something that is really important, and that's the Holy Spirit's enabling. Reminds me of a story I heard one time. A fellow was working at a tool rental company. You know, like they do at Home Depot or various places like that. And a fellow comes back and he brings in this great big chainsaw that he had rented. And he put it down on the counter and he said, this chainsaw does not work. In fact, I, it was easier for me to cut down a tree with an axe than with this saw. Why in the world are you renting these things? Well, the man that was at the the desk, he rubbed his hand over the blade. He says, the blade's, you know, the, you know, the chain's pretty sharp. And so he backs up with the chainsaw, he pulls the, pulls the cord, and the chainsaw rips to like, like that. And the guy says, what's that noise? I want you to think about that for a moment. How hard would it be to cut down a tree with a chainsaw without the engine running? That's like the Christian life without the power, the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. That's the idea. We just, just effort, just doing, just working harder is, 
is not God's plan for ultimate sanctification. And it is easy, even in this setting, to start thinking that. If I just witness more, if I just talk to more people, now, it, I should be sharing the gospel with people, but there should be a freeing, enabling, empowering work of the Holy Spirit in the normal course of life that makes that happen. So sanctification by effort, and this is very common. Uh, second blessing, sanctification or perfectionism. Um, <clears throat> This is, by the way, the, I, the idea of living a spirit-filled life has also often been criticized as second blessing or perfectionism. But if you understand what, even what Brother, Brother Flanders preached this morning, the idea of backsliding, the whole, the whole concept of black backsliding is against the concept of perfectionism. I go back to Joe Purdy again, my secretary. She had a mother-in-law that came from a religious background that did believe in second blessing theology. She said the biggest curse any woman in the world could have is a mother who had, or is having a mother-in-law who no longer sins. <laughs> we understand that sin is possible. In fact, backsliding is possible. You know, Christian life is an interesting thing because God starts us off, we start off in this right relationship with him and, we, and he takes us through decision, decision and things that he's teaching us, things that he's teaching us. And then we come to a point where he says, now I want you to do this and we say, not that. And just like Brother Flanders, you mentioned this morning, that's the moment that we backslide. We come up against that, that particular demand. I want you to not marry this person. Oh Lord, but I really want that. I want you to not be in full-time ministry. Oh no, Lord, but that's what I really want. I want you to go to the mission field, but no, but no, Lord, I want to be pastor in the U.S. You know, there, there's there certain things or certain demands or certain places, and we, we come up against that moment where we want to exercise our will for something that we think is good, and we turn and we go back. And you can see moments in the history of biblical characters where they did that and they backslid. Peter is a perfect example. David, in his sin with Bathsheba, Moses, when he struck the rock. Listen, we, we understand that there is no such thing. We don't get to perfectionism. And perfection, the idea of perfectionism, and I, we would really love to have that. I remember as a young person thinking, oh, what a wonderful thing. If I can just learn to love God and walk in the spirit more, in high school thinking this, and, and that, you know, there will be some moment in which I break through the clouds of the drawing of sin into the wild blue yonder of Christian maturity, and then I'll no, have no, no more problems with these types of things anymore. No, God keeps testing us. God keeps making demands of us. God keeps transforming us. God keeps changing us. There's no such thing as perfectionism. We don't get to the point in this life where sin is no longer an issue for us. Second work of grace. Huh. Now, second work of grace theology basically is like this. It sees a second decision 
as somehow separate from salvation. Now, it's really interesting. It emphasizes an initial decision rather than the continuing surrender that is necessary for personal holiness. Now, this is, this is to be distinguished from what Brother Fan, Slanders was, or Flanders was talking about this morning. Sorry. <laughs> what a terrible way. You know, if you preach long enough, you really will say some silly things from the pulpit. It is not the same, I am not talking about a decision for rededication. Rededication is simply confession of sin over an issue that has turned us around and sent us the wrong direction in life. But the idea of this second work of grace sees somehow there's this decision for salvation and then there's this separate decision that has to happen later on that sends us on the path of Christian maturity. Well, no, we make that decision at salvation and because salvation is surrender to the, to the Spirit of God and the Word of God regarding the God's message with regard, regard to salvation. And, and we have many decisions over and over throughout the Christian life. And so it's, we're not talking about a second work of grace. Another error is ecstatic experience. We look for some sort of mystical experience or emotion as part of sanctification. This is most commonly uh, demonstrated in the tongue speaking of the charismatic movement, but then they have all kinds of, you know, being slain in the spirit. You have to have some sort of special, mystical, emotional experience. But we don't see things, this type of thing reflected in Scripture. You don't find this in Scripture. Um, neither do you find perfectionism in Scripture, nor do you find the second work of grace in Scripture. Um, now, that doesn't mean that the Christian life doesn't have at times some emotional experiences. When I'm convicted of sin, I'm broken. David said, that God never refuses a broken spirit and a contrite heart. But that is the response to what's happening. That isn't the essence of it. Does that make sense? God convicts me and I respond with a certain level of brokenness and, and then there is an emotion that comes as a result. I don't seek the, I don't try to manufacture an emotion to be the thing, because then what happens is we begin to worship emotion. We try to manufacture emotion, and then you get into the services where they're, you know, they're doing all the, the songs and, and trying to work the songs together to develop a, an emotional response, and you sing these, the same chorus 50, you know, 50 or 60 times until people are almost in a trance, and you end up with emotional ma manipulation. No, God takes His truth applies His truth by the power of His Holy Spirit to our heart and transforms the way that we think, which transforms the way that we feel, which transforms the way that we live. So, ecstatic experience. Let's talk about passive, another one, passive sanctification. The two aspects of this. I want you to listen very carefully. One aspect of passive sanctification is, is extreme kessic. The other aspect of passive sanctification is extreme reformed. They're both the same. Basically, there's this one that says, you just let go and let God. And I'll just sit here and I'll just wait and God will change me. 
No, no. Sanctification requires active faith responses. Faith is expressed in James 2 in doing, in acting, in behaving. The extremed reform version of this is what we call inevitable sanctification. I really don't have to worry about it. It's just going to happen. It's just going to happen. By the way, the interesting thing about extreme uh, passive sanctification on the reform side is you don't worry about it. It's just going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, well, then I wasn't saved. Can't do anything about it anyway. What a depressing way to believe. So So passive... And um, by the way, the, the idea of passive sanctification, you think about this for a moment, it bypasses active surrender. It's, it, it replaces, there's, there's sort of a laziness type of sanctification. It, it bypasses active surrender. It, it de-emphasizes acting in obedience to faith. And so... Um, then there's another type of sanctification, um, error, and we call that legalism. Let me talk about, you know, there is a legalism with regard to salvation that says salvation is by the law. But there is a legalism with regard to sanctification. And it measures sanctification by a predetermined set of rules or standards. It ends up making sanctification about how well I conform to the list of rules rather than anything having to do with relationship. It is kind of an extension of sanctification by effort. Now, you say, well, do you have rules? Do you have standards? Of course you have to have rules. You have to have standards as you look at Scripture and you're trying to determine from Scripture the choices that you need to make and the way that you live. But sanctification, my my relationship with God is not based upon keeping simply a list of rules. In fact, Galatians chapter 5 is fascinating. The fruit of the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit, right? And as a result of walking in the Spirit, I don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. I don't not fulfill the lust of the flesh so I can walk in the Spirit. It doesn't work that way. I walk in the Spirit so I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So it, this measures um, sanctification by a predetermined set of rules or standards. It's very interesting, though. Usually those rules are stand, usually I set up rules or standards in my flesh that I can keep, but others can't, that makes me feel better than more spiritual than other people. Um, and so it's, it's legalism. It's about rules. It's not about relationship. I have another one. I tacked this one on in the end. Well, actually I actually have two more. We're going to spend a significant amount of time this morning talking about the last one. But this one is this. I like to call it miserable sanctification. (laughs) The more miserable and unhappy I am, the more spiritual I am. Have you met somebody like that? I mean, if I'm, if I'm just weeping and crying and broken and miserable all the time, I must be a really spiritual person. There is an aspect, and I, I, I want you here carefully to understand this. 
Don't miss what God is already now doing because you're longing for him to do something different. Oh, so if we do, if we, you know, if we just, God might, he will do, he might, wait, God, don't forget, God is already actively doing something right now in your hearts, in your lives. Imagine getting to heaven and saying, God, why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do that? He says, but, but wait a minute, but I was doing this and I was doing that. And you were missing it while you wanted something else. God is already active. God is already working. God is already doing a work in your life. He is already empowering you. He is already moving you. He is already preparing you. Don't miss all of that for what you want him to do just because it looks like some, something somebody else does. I, I am concerned sometimes in fundamentalism, in a, in a longing for revival, we want to God to do something exactly like he did at some other time in the past. And every revival looks different. And God does something different in every time. What we should want God to do is what he wants to do right now. Now let's go to the last one. Solo sanctification. Solo sanctification. I'm going to get off all by myself. Just me and God. And God is going to do this work that is so important all by himself and me. Now, it is true that there are times we, and we ought to regularly get alone with God. But I want you to understand, Jesus Christ's plan was for New Testament church sanctification to be a corporate thing. It has to happen in connection to the whole body. Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk, live worthy of the vocation, the occupation wherewith you're called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, as even as you are called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all, but in every one of us is given grace or a gift according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended, what it is all, but he also descended first in the lower part of the earth. He that descended is the same that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, to the, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all all come in the unity of faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now I want you to look at this passage of Scripture. And we're going to go to the end of the passage of Scripture and see where it is supposed to take us. And then we'll go to the beginning of the passage of Scripture and see how we were supposed to get there. 
Okay, so what is the end? Till we all come to the place where we are in the measure of the stature of the fullness. We look like, we're mature like, we become like Christ. What is the point of sanctification? To become Christ-like. Until we all, this is this passage of scripture, all of us come to Christ-likeness. Well, how did that happen? How do we all come to Christ-likeness? Well, the Apostle Paul in this passage of Scripture is speaking to the body and he's describing the importance of every member of the body in helping the entire body become what the body is supposed to be in Christ Jesus. Now notice, he said, first of all, there has to be a sense of unity in the body. He says, with all lowliness and meekness and long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, there is one body, one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. There, when you got saved, you received what theologically we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that process whereby the Spirit places the believer in the body of Christ. There's one baptism, it says here. Describing that one baptism of the Spirit, where the Spirit places you within the body. You are in a body. Now, we have that whole body of Christ, but it is manifested in this age in the local body. This, this local body of believers where you are connected and you are supposed to be connected to this local body of believers so that you can eventually come what to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here, simple statement. You cannot become what God wants you to become without one another. You cannot become what God wants you to become without the local church. You must always be connected to the local church. Now, some of you are also going into ministry, which is also gonna describe what your responsibility of ministerial leadership in the church is. Now, notice what he says. So we're, we wanna be functioning together as a body. It says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the body in the, in the bond of peace. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about, you know, we all have different giftings. Isn't it interesting? He talks about Jesus in this passage of scripture, ascending to heaven, but as he ascends to heaven, what does he do? He gives gifts to men. Now, what are those gifts? In the context, we're talking about body life. I think he's talking about the spiritual gifts that are manifested during the, uh, in the body of believers. Now, here's what he said. Jesus is not here physically presently. Now, there's a spiritual sense in which Christ is here. And, but what he did when he ascended to heaven, he left us the Holy Spirit. And one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to give you gifts to serve. And those gifts are divine, divine enablement, enablements to serve the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul describes some of those in Romans chapter 12. Gifts of giving and gifts of teaching and gifts of exhortation. I don't think Romans chapter 12 is by any means an exhaustive or a complete list. But we have these different things, differing abilities. You here in this group have differing abilities. And he says, well, we need to understand that we, we need to function within this body. In fact, I love the analogy of the body 
the body is sort of mutually dependent, right? The foot doesn't do well functioning all on its own. It just, unless you're in some sort of horror movie, it just sits there. But the body really functions when the brain is working, the eye is working, the eyes are working, the legs are working, the signals are going back and forth, the heart is pumping, the, the lungs are breathing, they're providing the oxygen. And when, when a local church is functioning like that, it can walk really well. But when certain parts of the body are not working, we kind of have local churches that look like the Frankenstein walk, you know? We're limping along. He said, now, there should be a unity. And how does that unity work when we have a sense of lowliness or humbleness? There are certain gifts that are more visible than others. Preaching, teaching gifts. Oh, man. I'm a preacher or teacher. God's given me that gift. So what? Use it. Humbly. Oh, I wish I could have that gift. Can I tell you something? I, I think that there is one gift that God has not given me, and that's that gift of encouragement or exhortation. I will tell you, I have been so greatly blessed by the people that have that gift, though. I would not be where I am in ministry without those people would come alongside with words of exhortation or words of encouragement. And that has made a huge difference, not only in my ministry, but in my personal Christian walk. There are, there are others with these, with these various gifts. You need one another to be what you should be. But there's this, so there should be a, a humbleness, a lowliness. Lowliness of mind is a thinking of my, not thinking too much of myself. Let every one of us, Romans chapter 12, he, he, we are exalted not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. When I was a young person, we had a preacher in our church. For, I don't know, he was from, from Oklahoma or Texas or someplace. I remember he used to write his signature with a cowboy hat. You probably know who I'm talking about. But I, I do remember he, he stood in the pulpit. He said, I'd like, with this big, long Southern drawl, I'd like to buy some Christians for what they're worth and sell them for what they think they're worth. There needs to be a humbleness. Now, meekness is different. Humbleness is my view toward myself. Meekness is my view toward others. It sees others as important. See, in a spiritual awakening, this context, it, it, it can become very easy for you to so focus on yourself, you forget about the importance of the ministry that you, ha you should be having toward the person who is sitting next to you. We're one body. He said there's one body. Only, it is the same Holy Spirit that is working in all of you. One Lord. We have one master. I will tell you, it is, when you have one master, you can function pretty well together. I started working as a sexton at Calvary Baptist Church of Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Now, have you ever heard, anybody heard of a sexton before? A sexton is a janitor. 
I was the assistant sexton. <laughs> Dr. Jordan called me into his office. He said, okay, here's Bruce Landis. Bruce Landis is your boss. He said, there is no one else in this ministry that is your boss except him. You go through him. Now, he had this military background, so he understood chain of command. Here's what he understood. It's very easy for the janitor in the church to have 700 bosses. And it is very difficult to satisfy 700 bosses. We have one boss, one Lord, Jesus Christ. There is one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all of us. He is working through all of us, and he is in all of us. And he's given each of us gifts, and he's, by the way, the gifts that he's given, that's his business. I should not be longing to have someone else's gift. I should not be thinking that person is more special to God because they stand in a pulpit and preach and I don't. We're going to get to heaven someday. And I don't know if they'll do something like this in heaven, but if they do, they have the list of the best Christians who ever lived. The most faithful, most spiritual, most godly, most influential Christians who ever lived. I really believe those people are going to be people that we don't even know their names today. It's going to be some quiet grandmother who spent her life on her knees in a prayer closet interceding for people. And we don't even know who she is. Remember this, one boss, one person to please. This isn't about looking good in front of everyone. This is about pleasing one person, your master. So, the, so we, we just want to have a revival. I want to make sure that, that, you know, I'm the one that looks good and I'm the one that's making the most decision in this. Wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no. This is about pleasing the one master. But unto everyone has given us the measure. We're given gifts. And we're giving gifts in different measures. Some are more effective than others. There are plenty more preachers that are better than I am. I just need to use the gifts that God has given me to the best of the ability and empowering ability that he's given me. And that will please him. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended a high, we talked about that. And he gave, we come to verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. He gave these people, I believe apostles and prophets there, have to do with supernatural gifts that were associated um, uh, with the first century. The, the last of the apostles died in the first century. The supernatural gift of prophecy, I do believe, died in the first century. However, we still have the impact of the supernatural gift of prophecy. It's laying right there in your lap. And so we still have the prophets with us. And so we, we have, but then he's also given to us evangelists. The idea, idea of an evangelist was an itinerant gospelizer. We have, when he's talking about evangelists here, I do think most missionaries would be categorized as evangelists by this definition. 
those church planting gospelizers, evangelizers established, the Apostle Paul would have been on the, and then there's pastors, shepherds, guides, teachers, for what? For the completing of the saints, interesting word here, ace, there's a, the, some of you taking the Greek class, you have the ace and ek, you know the two words, unto, out from, ek means to come out, ace to go in, ace, unto, right? For the perfecting of the saints unto, what? The work of the ministry, unto or for the perfecting of the body of Christ. It isn't that the pastors and teachers or the evangelists perfect the saints, do the work of the ministry. It's the perfecting of the saints so that they do the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. The way the church is supposed to function is everyone should be ministering to everyone. I've been burdened about this. I've believed this all of my life. But we sat as a pastoral staff a couple weeks ago, just meditating on this passage of scripture and saying, how well are we actually focusing on doing this in our ministry? And how many times are we choosing simply to do the work of the ministry in the place of others who should be doing the work of ministry because it's easier or because we think we can do it better? Do you remember when your mother taught you to do the dishes? I don't know about you, but that learning to do the dishes was something every one of the children learned in our family. It didn't matter if it was boys or girls. And in our family, no one was dismissed from the kitchen until all of the dishes were done. We all did it. When you have five kids, that can make for a crowded kitchen. In fact, to this day, I still remain, I, Dad, I stay in the kitchen until the dishes are done. But you know when mom is first teaching the child to do the dishes, you know, she puts the, Hopefully, you, she did it before your voice changed, guys. But, you know, she puts the, the little stool up there, right? And you stand there, and she's showing you how to clean off the dishes. And, and so you're learning how to clean them. And then after, after you go to bed, she goes back and rewashes all of them. <laughs> it takes more work in the beginning to teach someone else than to do it yourself. But the mom understands, if she doesn't teach this now, these kids are going to kill her with work later. And they won't become what they need to become to be productive in life. And so we began asking, how many times are we jumping in and instead of teaching people to use their gifts, to minister to others, we're just doing it for them. And for us, God convicted us. This is a failure of leadership on our part. There is no way the people of our congregation can become what they need to become in Christ unless we allow them to use the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to them to minister to one another.
because the exercise of your gift and your gifts are necessary for your sanctification and the exercise of your gifts are necessary for others to grow as well. Notice that we henceforth, now notice, till we all come in the unity of faith, verse verse 13, and the knowledge of the Son of God unto what? A perfect or a complete man, unto the measure of the stature, until we, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's a, a very poetic way of saying we become completely Christ-like. And then he describes the church later on what he says, but verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him to become like him in all things. Christ is the head, who is the head even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint, it describes his body, put together in all of these things, working the, the tendons, the sinews, the, the, the blood veins, the blood flowing, all of that working together. Every joint supplies, which makes increase of the body, the increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So here's the deal. You need, in order to be sanctified, to be ministering to one another. And you need, in order to be sanctified, to let others minister to you. That's hard sometimes. God has changed me at times through the words of believers that I had a hard time listening to. Somebody that, sad to say, I didn't have that much respect for. And, and sometimes even, sometimes even they were speaking, I, I, weren't sh- I wasn't sure that they were speaking in the spirit, but God used those words still to transform me. Sanctification is a corporate thing, not just an individual thing. And so function, minister within the body. Let people encourage you, encourage others. Let people change you. Sometimes God makes big life changes in a service like this. I remember I was at winter camp. I don't even remember what the preacher was preaching on, but I know I was being convicted. <clears throat> Earlier that day, I was, a, I was a sophomore in high school and had, you know, I wanted to live for the Lord, but I was in a backslidden state. I was, I wanted to be popular with my friends and still kind of do the right thing. I was pretty good as a young person at looking good to my spiritual leaders, but trying to look cool with my peers. You know what I'm talking about? I could say the things under my breath and I could kind of be there where they were. I was, I was playing both ends. And I thought I was pretty good at it, but I guess I wasn't as clear as I, was, as I should have been or as I thought I was. So we're sitting in a, in a soul winning class Tri-City Baptist Church at that time had a fellow who uh, 
was a, he was a mailman, but a tremendous soul winner. And so they had him teaching a soul winning class. And he was getting frustrated with these Christian school kids. Is this, he's just big Swedish hockey player mailman, you know? He, he was one of those, Mr. Nelson, John Nelson was his name. He'd, you know, he would take his teeth out when he eat, because you know, anyway, just because he got him knocked out playing hockey when he was younger. He was just rough, rough guy. And we were just talking about Richard Wells, who was also in um, Brother Flanders' church. He was a lot like Brother Wells. And he was just very plain, straightforward. And so he's, he's speaking, and he said this. He said, you know, some of you Christian school kids aren't worth more than a pile of dung for God. He could just say things like that that the preachers couldn't get him. And I, I'm sitting in the back row, and I did like just what Brother Jim did. I snickered to myself a little bit. And he looked straight at me, and he pointed his finger at me, and he said, and Kevin Shaw, you're one of them. And I did just like you did, and everybody else, ooh. <laughs> so that, we had the class, we were walking up to where the, where the main meeting room was. And I'm walking all, and you know how the kids can do in a school? They can kind of gather around and they start whispering and complaining and kind of gossiping because they had heard what was happening. They were kind of defending me for being humiliated in front of it. And I wasn't saying a word because the Spirit of God was convicting my heart. And I had a friend that was walking along beside me and he said something that was particularly ungodly. And one of the girls looked at him and she said, Mike, I can't believe you said that. You're an evangelist, son. That was Mike Sproul. We had been friends for a while. And, what I, and then all of a sudden, I don't know, it's a, um, bad news or Amber Alert or something that it's happening. And anyway, so, um, so, then I began to realize, you know, Mike was walking with the Lord before I knew him. And since we've begun good friends, he's not been doing as well as he should spiritually. And I began to realize, I began to realize that not only was I not walking with the Lord, my influence on others was detrimental. We got to the service that night, and I don't even remember what the preacher preached on. He could have preached on anything. It didn't matter. I sat there, just the Spirit of God convicting and convicting and convicting Mike sitting next to me. Got a girl that I was trying to impress sitting on the other side, you know. And I remember we came to the invitation time, and I turned to Mike. I said, Mike, I don't know what you're going to do, but I have to serve God. And down I went. I didn't even know this until later, but Mike was right on my heels coming down. And there were a lot of decisions that need to happen after that, but God transformed my life. And the impetus to it was one sentence from a mailman that was not even a preacher, but had a certain gift of prophecy 
that forth-telling, challenging exhortation. A lot of what goes on in a church that helps people grow or hurts people from growing happens in the foyer. And these days on Facebook and on the telephone and in the Starbucks. Are you going to be an influence for good or not? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 